we are really wanting to redefine what a computer scientist looks like and does. You know, no longer is it the white guy in a hoodie in a basement. We really want to show that there are Katherine Johnsons all over the world and that these young women who are rising the ranks are just as qualified and talented and should be just as respected as the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. This is the CMO and Joe podcast. We interview today's most inspiring chief marketing officers and savvy marketers of lucrative direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies, bringing you insightful stories and tips on marketing, sales, branding, and much more. We bring you the best lessons from the best. Let's get started with your host, Joe Momo. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Thanks for having me, Joe. Yeah, so I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, obviously, you do such great work and the organization we work for as well. Um, but before we jump into all of that, uh, perhaps give us a bit of a backstory about yourself and kind of your origin story. Sure. Um, so I grew up in the Washington, D.C. Um, area, and I was, an, I'm an only child, um, and I've always really been very curious um, and very observant. Uh, so, you know, when I was thinking about what careers I would want to go into, um, the, the first thing that popped in my mind actually was journalism. And I, you know, in, in high school, I was on um, our school newspaper. I did a really great newspaper internship at Howard University in high school. And I knew I wanted to be a print journalist. Um, I get to college, I get to Howard, and I, you know, I'm you know, working on the newspaper, really excited. And then all of a sudden, I kind of have this thought of, do I want to really be chasing these stories forever? And is that really my passion? And I took a public relations class. And I was like, this is it. I was like, this combines my love of business and my love of communication. I think this is going to be like my new journey. So I quick I switched my major or my concentration I should say I have a journalism degree from Howard um, and I switched my concentration to public relations and from there I was really really interested in working in an agency um, I had several agency internships in high in college and then I got a great opportunity to work at Ogilvy um, Worldwide in New York City upon graduation um, but. The uh, it, the job that I that I was um, hired for was actually, or the program that I was hired into was their associates program in their advertising agency, not PR. So coming into working at Ogilvy, I knew I had agency experience, so I knew what to expect. But I was really not as familiar with the advertising and um, marketing world as I was with the PR communications world. So it was a great opportunity for me to learn about what is done on the advertising and marketing side while still working in an environment that I was familiar with, which was an agency. Um, I worked at Ogilvy for three years and, um, you know, I really enjoyed my time there. I learned so much from some really smart people and I really honed my skills on working in more of a digital marketing realm, um, as well as working on um, website development. Um, when I entered the workforce, it was 2008, uh, so it was a recession, and no one was making splashy TV ads um, during that year. So I really was able to sink my teeth into, um, you know, what was developing um, in the world of like web marketing, um, as well as um, 
as well as uh, SEO and, um, you know, different types of analytics mixes. So I was really able to dig my teeth in there, which are traits that I carried on throughout the rest of my career. That's, that's really outstanding, Ashley. Um, one thing I wish uh, I would have known when I first began my career is kind of having that foresight of what I, I truly wanted to do. But for you personally, what's one thing you wish it would have known um, when you first began your career? I think I, I, the, the one thing I wish I would have known when I first started my career is more about mentorship and how to ask for help. Um, I think that I felt very, very confident in my ability to work in a workplace. But, you know, until you're tested, you don't really know what you don't know. And I think that in those moments when I was tested early on in my career, I wish that I had uh, um, understood what what type of questions or what type of um, knowledge I needed from a mentor um, versus always relying on my manager to be that person or, um, you know, relying on peers to be sounding boards, but actually really having someone who could provide me with mentorship and um, and also um, advocacy um, is something that I wish I had learned early on, which I think are things that um, young, young people in their career are getting more and more now. Um, but I think that it was a little bit early um, especially outside of traditional corporate spaces, um, I don't think that it was as um, promoted. Mm, absolutely. You mentioned mentorship. How I know a lot of our listeners are always asked the question of how do you find a mentor? So I'm curious to know from you, Ashley, how or what kind of strategies do you go about finding a good mentor? I have had one of the one I've had the great fortune of having a mentor who actually interviewed me for my um, job at Ogilvy. Uh, she was a Howard alumni alumna, and she came to campus and she was an account director at Ogilvy, and she interviewed me for the job. And I was, you know, so enamored with her. She was such an amazing, you know, black woman in the advertising space, which is not something that you normally see in executive roles. And I just like kind of stuck with her. Um, and, you know, our careers have, have both evolved, but still, you know, whenever I have um, a need to sort of check in with someone that I know knows me and knows my career, um, I always come back to her um, and we've developed a great friendship um, throughout. And I think that, um, you know, outside of having, you know, a good friendship and personal relationship with her, things that I've looked for in other mentors and ways that I found other mentors have honestly been, you know, really just asking, um, you know, learning a little bit about someone, particularly if they're inside of the organization where I work and, you know, asking if, you know, they have time for a coffee or, you know, sending them an email and just, you know, congratulating them on a win that um, they recently had as an opener. Um, you know, people do enjoy being congratulated um, and just sort of trying to find a place where um, where you have some commonality, but also trying to find a, a, a nugget of, um, of ways that you can both work together. Um, I think that mentorship sometimes the person who is, who's being approached to be the mentor, you know, they can kind of shy away because they think that it's going to be a one-way relationship. Um, and in some, in some instances that that's necessary. Um, I think when you, um, think about advocacy and having someone who is your advocate, that oftentimes is a one-way relationship. Um, the advocate being the person that is 
you know, advocating for you in rooms where you're not. But I think with mentorship, I think that it can be a two-way street. Um, I would say with my mentor, Dara, um, she and I talk a lot about trends in the industry. And there are a lot of things that I may know that she doesn't because she's not in the trenches um, in some of those areas. And she's able to sort of help me step back and take a, a look at the big picture um, because that's where her, you know, her, how where she is in her career. So I think that you, you know, with mentorship, it's important that you can see both sides. Um, But I think when you're talking about having an advocate, um, I think oftentimes you enter those relationships where, um, you know, the person who's advocating for you in places where you may not be, or with people who you don't have access to, they need to have a vested interest in wanting to see, to see you succeed, even if it, um, even if there's not necessarily an immediate benefit to them. Right, right. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, one thing I, I, I do want to ask you um, is what kind of unique skill um, do you, would you say you have that's helped you uh, become successful in your career? I think a unique skill that I have uh, really that's helped me be successful and that's actually um, something that I kind of saw as a weakness in the beginning is that I can be a very empathetic manager and empathetic coworker. Um, and I think that, you know, in today's environment where we are grappling with so many personal changes, whether it be social justice movements here in the U.S. or whether it be dealing with the pandemic and dealing with family, you know, different types of family dynamics, I think that it's really important that you're able to level with and empathize with your coworkers um, as well as people who you manage. Um, I think that that can only be, um, for me, what I've seen is that that's drawn me closer to people and, you know, it's allowed me to have grace when I need it. You know, I receive grace from them, but it's also allowed me to be able to give grace when needed, um, as well as not feel, um, feel badly if I need to be firm. Um, because I think that, you know, people understand where I'm coming from and understand that like, I'm not one way. Um, but that I truly care about their development and I truly care about, um, about what's going on in their lives. And if, you know, if the, the time arises where we have a disagreement, it comes from a sort of a, a grounded place, not from, um, not from a, a malicious place. Right. No, empathy for sure is uh, key sauce in um, <laughs> building good relationships and progressing in your career. But it's also interesting that you mentioned uh, the two issues um, going on, uh, social mm-hmm. justice, the pandemic. Uh, from your perspective, though, what's kind of been the biggest challenges for you personally the last 90 or 100 days? Yeah, so I live in Brooklyn, New York, um, I and I live alone. Um, so when we were uh, told that we would no longer be coming into the office and we would be quarantining, you know, I, I have parents who are, you know, in that sort of class of folks that are more susceptible to COVID. So I didn't really feel good about going home. I felt like, you know, this is going to blow over, you know, I'm going to stay here and hunker down in my apartment. Um, and I think that, you know, the, in, in the, within the pandemic, I really had to, you know, get used to being alone more than usual. 
Um, and you know, I'm again, like I said, I'm an only child, so I, you know, should love my alone time and I do, but you really underestimate, you know, how much you get out of having interactions with folks, um, at work or socially. So fine. So that was something that I've struggled with is just sort of still feeling connected to friends and family, you know, being that person that's always wanting to get on a Zoom call, a Zoom happy hour. Do you want to have a Zoom brunch on Sunday? Like my friends and I got really creative with that. Um, But I, I, I would say that that was my that's been my struggle. And then, you know, going through something that like we're going through with the pandemic where, you know, emotions are so up and down um, and there's so much sadness and grief, you know, oftentimes we grieve as a community. And I'm fortunate that I work, you know, at Girls Who Code where we rally together around, uh, around each other. And, you know, we created those spaces for ourselves um, within the organization, but it was definitely, um, it was definitely hard. It was harder than we, than I think we all thought it would be to, to be um, separate from each other. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and what we've seen after the death of George Floyd, I can say that, unfortunately, this is not the first time that, you know, as a Black woman, I have had to come to work and present myself as a person who is not experiencing, you know, some of these issues. What I find to be, what I found heartening and so, so, so incredible is that as an organization at Girls Who Code, we really rallied around our staff and rallied around each other to, you know, say that it's okay not to be okay. And, you know, to, to name the feelings that we were feeling, whether it was anger or sadness or disappointment. Um, and as a, as an organization really deal with and grapple with, you know, some of the, even, you know, issues that were coming up um, with, with, within ourselves um, and really being committed to um, committed to dealing with um, dealing with any sort of racial injustice or inequities that we felt we were feeling inside the organization, but also making sure first and foremost that our students um, were supported. And, you know, over 50% of the girls in our Girls Who Code program are from historically underrepresented groups um, which means that they come from, um, which means that they are black or Latina or, or receive, um, free and reduced lunch, which is a metric that's used in education in the U S. Um, and we know from the stories that we hear from our girls that they were really struggling and we wanted to make sure that they felt supported in, you know, in this virtual space and knew that they had support from us, um, as an organization. Yeah, it sounds like Girls Who Code are taking all the right steps to really uh, address these issues. Um, but before we continue, maybe we'll add a little bit more context to the listeners. Could you just briefly explain what uh, Girls Who Code does? Yes. Uh, so Girls Who Code is a, a global nonprofit organization. Um, we have been around for um, seven years, and we serve over 300,000 girls in the U.S., Canada, India, and the U.K. Um, we are an organization that's dedicated to closing the gender gap in entry-level technology jobs um, by, um, by providing girls with the training and skills they need to enter the computer science space. Um, we were founded by a woman um, named Reshma Sajani. Uh, she is the author of a best-selling book called Brave Not Perfect. Um, and she really, really 
you know, came about Girls Who Code in a very unique way. Um, she was running for office in New York City and she was going to do different campaign stops and realized that when she would go into these schools, particularly in high school, and she would go into computer science classrooms, there wouldn't be no girls or there would be one um, or, you know, and the girl would be like not saying anything. And, you know, she was really concerned that um, young women were being left behind in the technology space, particularly um, as it relates to women of color, because we know that these tech jobs are the key to moving up into the middle class. And it was very, very important to her that she figured out a way to make these girls not only feel confident, but, you know, to show them that they, they, they could do anything, you know, and, you know, coding, learning to code was one thing, one aspect of that. But, you know, we really instill in our girls the, the message of sisterhood and bravery and candor as core values of our organization and letting them know that, you know, the summer or school school year that you spend in our programs are, um, it's only a stepping stone to what you can do. Um, and thankfully, uh, you know, a majority of our girls, a majority of our alumni go on to major in computer science. And then now we have a cohort of um, young women who are in the workplace who have come through our program. Um, so, we're, you know, extremely excited about the future and what it holds. Um, we've been fortunate that our staff, a particular education team, has been so instrumental in pivoting our programs virtually. Every day we are, you know, astounded by the great work that we see coming out of those teams um, to continue to support our girls in during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, obviously now looking ahead to the next school year, you know, and what that means for our, our programs going forward. That's fantastic. Um, what, what would you say is your fir- or sorry? What would you say is your favorite part of your current role right now? So, as marketing director of Girls Who Code, I think my favorite part of the work is the culture change work that we're doing. Um, we are really wanting to redefine what a computer scientist looks like and does. Um, you know, no longer is it the white guy in a hoodie in a basement. Um, we really want to show that you know the. That, that there are Katherine Johnsons and Ayanna Howards, who's a roboticist, all over the world. Um, and that these young women who are rising um, the ranks are, you know, just as qualified and talented and should be just as respected as the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. Um, so, you know, sharing with you know, sharing with communities and sharing with um, sharing the message that girls can girls can do anything that they want to put their minds to and that girls are change makers in their community um, have, has been a part of my work that I can't, um, I can't get enough of. That's awesome. I uh, just want to switch gears a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit more marketing uh, talk, uh, but I'm curious to get your perspective, Ashley, how has the industry changed from when you first started uh, your career to where it is to where it is today? I think the biggest thing that's changed in the industry is, the fact that there's less, there's fewer and fewer barriers um, and fewer and fewer barriers to connecting with consumers. So, you know, before social, you know, when I first started, social media was really Facebook and Twitter. And for some brands, they only use those as mechanisms to share a one-way conversation. Um, You know, they just wanted to say, we have a new product or we have an announcement. 
but they weren't really using them, these tools as ways to get information back from their consumer um, and from their, um, you know, from, from the consumer. And I think that now the, the amount of direct, quick, instant feedback um, that you get on social media is really lowering the barriers to creation. And I think it's making us go to market extremely fast. Um, and, you know, oftentimes the, the companies um, that are left behind are those that are still following like that traditional marketing cycle, you know, that traditional, you know, sort of CPG model of, you know, year, a whole year marketing cycle. Um, and I think that now, you know, that just does, that can't exist anymore. Um, and we have to be faster and nim- and more nimble um, in order to, you know, react to, to some of the things that are going on in the world. And I think that brands are, you know, particularly as it relates to um, social justice, I think that brands are trying. But I think as we can see, um, a story that's popped up today in the U.S. is the country music group Lady Antebellum changing their name to Lady A and not realizing or or ignoring the fact that there was a blues singer um, whose name was Lady A and now they're suing her. So, you know, really being as a brand, like you really have to be steadfast in your values and you have to decide, is this something that you care about? And if so, you need to care about it and see it through. You can't, you know, it can't be a performance. Um, And I think that that is, you know, again, a sign of the times, you know, consumers are just not going to stand for that. Um, And I think that it is important that brands remember that authenticity is is really king in this um, environment. Absolutely. Authenticity is uh, the secret sauce, I'd say. Um, like you're saying, uh, it shouldn't be a one-way conversation. It should be, you should include your audience and have um, their perspectives included and also stand, stand for your values. Um, you did mention social media, though. What, what are some of your favorite social media networks to uh, build that authenticity and uh, marketing um, campaigns? So we've seen amazing success with social, with using Instagram um, for Girls Who Code. Uh, you know, a majority of um, our core demographic or the girls that we serve are girls that are um, between the ages of 12 and like 20 years old. Um, what we find as being an organization that is also rooted in the women's empowerment space is that millennial women love and are fans of our organization. So we feel like Instagram has been a great sweet spot for us because not only are we able to reach our you know core demographic of girls in our programs, we're also able to engage with women who are a bit older um, and who can you know donate or you know be our cheerleaders. Um, and we find that we've had um, such great, amazing campaigns um, using Instagram. Uh, we are dabbling in TikTok, uh, which is where our um, students are, and you know, finding that finding great success with that. Um, it does mean that sometimes you know we have to let our hair down as a staff and be a little bit more participatory. But also, there's amazing memes on TikTok com- that are done by you know great um, young women sort of demystifying computer science or poking fun um, at, you know, different aspects of coding that can be frustrating. So we're finding, you know, TikTok to also be a great medium for us as well. 
Awesome. Will, will we catch you guys doing some TikTok dances on TikTok as well? <laughs> there, is, there is a video um, uh, on our Girls Who Code channel from our sisterhood campaign. Um, I think it's I I think it would spin up there probably for a little bit over a year. I am not doing a TikTok, um, but I enthusiastically encourage um, anyone who wants to get on there. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, one thing I want to touch touch uh, on with you is uh, maybe if you can share. But what's been kind of the most successful marketing campaign uh, that you're you've ever worked on? Sure, uh, I think that the most successful cam- marketing campaign that I've ever worked on actually is um, a campaign that I worked on in the beginning of my career, uh, early on in my career, I should say. Um, I worked on the Michelle Obama campaign called Let's Move. Um, I was a part of the team that launched the first iteration of the Let's Move campaign, which was a campaign um, to encourage uh, young people to get out and exercise and to eat healthy. Um, And I think that, you know, that was um, Mrs. Obama's platform. And that was something that she didn't waver from during the first term of um, President Obama's presidency. And I think that just understanding the strategic you know, value that my agency provided and that our creative team was able to execute um, and see the iterations of that over time throughout that uh, that first term was incredible. Um, and I think that beyond the sort of political realm, I think that it was a very, very important message that was able to be cascaded down and and channeled into so many different avenues, whether it was Mrs. Obama doing push-ups with Ellen on the Ellen show or whether, you know, she was, um, whether, you know, she was talking about healthy eating on the White House lawn. I think there were just so many pieces of that campaign that were able to live on that um, I, I found that to be extremely successful. Well, that's really awesome. I didn't know uh, you were part of that campaign. Yeah. Um, what's, from your perspective, what's kind of some of the biggest mistakes or maybe even challenges when launching a new marketing initiative? So I think that some of the biggest challenges uh, and, you know, you can, and also sort of mistakes that are made is not really sticking to who your core audience is. We find that, you know, sometimes at Girls Who Code, um, we have two really big campaigns um, or are one of our biggest campaigns is called, uh, is during on international day of the girl, which is usually falls around October 11th. And, you know, every year around, you know, the beginning of the year prior to the the campaign launching, we always create a strategy and we always say, okay, we're targeting this group. And then we hire an agency sometimes, um, and we get down the road and then we're oftentimes, you know, faced with, well, should we consider this group? Should we should should we really just be targeting Gen Z? Should we try to target millennials as well? You know, and oftentimes that's where your message can be diluted. And I think that you know, depending on what your what your goal is, I think it's important that you speak to the people who you intended to to sell to or who you intended to reach. Um, I, I don't think that you, you, you can water down something or, you know, elevate something to a level that's not understandable if you're trying to talk to younger, you know, a younger group. You know, if you're trying to talk to millennials, millennials are a huge group. So you can't talk to them like you're talking to Gen Z. Many 
of many millennials have children and mortgages, you know? So I think that it's important that you really stick to the group that you're targeting and that you uh, really, you know, have confidence that that message is going to resonate with them and that you're going to get them the result that you're looking for. Absolutely. Um, what's, what's sort of like a, uh, exciting marketing trend that you've uh, come across or you're witnessing right now from your perspective? You know, I am fascinated by all of the, uh, the, the, the ads that are coming up around the pandemic, to be honest, I have not seen huge corporations like car companies pivot to a message that is, you know, so resonant that by the time it, it airs, it's almost out of date. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I think that it's amazing, you know, being on the other side of that when you're asking your client, you know, can we do this in two weeks? And they're saying it's going to be two weeks to get approvals. Like these, these ads were, are, are being made in two weeks time. Um, and I think that, you know, the use of the use of sort of digital technology, like taking Zoom videos or personal videos and stringing them together and making them into, you know, TV quality, broadcast quality ads, I think is incredible. Um, I think that it's only going to change our industry for the better. Um, I think it's going to really allow us to be a lot more creative. Um, and it ha- we have to be um, because we don't know, you know, how long this is going to last. And, you know, the world is not stopping. Um, and I think we have to figure out ways to work within um, within this environment. Are there any brands or even marketers in particular that uh, you've admired? Uh, you mentioned the pandemic ads, but have there been any companies or brands that it's really resonated with you? I think that what where I am, where I see it the most. It's the most stark change. Um, and I, and it's not that I don't, I'm not a driver, but I'm really fascinated by the auto, the automotive industry and what they've been able to do. Um, I think that they've been able to, you know, pivot to now this summer, this, their, their ads that they're doing this summer are all around, you know, um, all around like taking a road trip, uh, you know, because that's really the main way that people are traveling. Um, and to think, to, 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 to think, to really, when you stop and think about it, because there, this should have been the time when all we would be seeing are ads around the Olympics. So let's just really stop and think that like the Tokyo Olympics were supposed to be now or in the next few weeks, and we would have been blanketed with thank you, mom, from Procter and Gamble and, you know, introducing these Olympic teams and, they, those ads were, are, were in the, in the can, like those have been filmed long ago. And now for us to be, you know, seeing these ads that are like directly pivoting to a message of, you know, pack your family in the car and drive across country or whatever, whatever. I'm really, you know, fascinated by um, how the automotive industry has been able to to pivot in that way, whether or not that works, whether or not people are trusting that <laughs> this is the time to travel or whether or not people are even buying cars or can afford to buy cars is another story. But I think that that's been really interesting. Well, that's some great insight. Um, only a few more questions here for you, Ashley. Sure. One thing I did want to ask though, um, what's kind of the biggest thing that girls who code does that maybe people don't know too much about? 
So I think the biggest thing that we do that people don't know too much about is our, I I think some of our um, international work is not as well known. Um, We do have clubs across Canada. um, And I think that another piece of our work that's unknown is really how, how much we are servicing underserved populations and how that is changing their lives. Um, you know, I think that we, we tend to get girls in our programs that are so eager to change the world. And, you know, when we see it from the projects that they do, whether, you know, we had a group of girls a few years ago create a project to end period stigma, and it was a game called Tampon Run. And, you know, just this summer during our virtual summer immersion program, we've seen girls creating um, activist toolkits on how to educate their family members on the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And I think that just, you know, some of these young women have been underestimated their whole lives, but we are giving them a platform and giving them the skills to, you know, use the medium of coding and technology to just to share their message with such a broad audience um, that I think that that is something that I don't, you know, I don't know that that people know about our organization, about, you know, some of the work that we're doing just to just instill um, bravery and to instill um, self-confidence um, in, in a lot of these young women is something that's really important to me that we continue to show um, or show more um, and that more people would know about our organization. That's wonderful. What's, uh, this one's a little bit, maybe a trickier question. I don't know, but uh, what's one question that you never get asked that you wish would be asked? That is a tricky question. <laughs> Not to stop you there, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that I wish that more people, um, I wish that more people would ask me uh, about, you know, so I think more, I wish that more people would ask me more about what you've asked me a lot about industry trends. Um, I think that that is uh, something because I'm a little bit of a nerd that I've always been into. But I think that, you know, a lot of times uh, when people are talking to me, they tend to, because I work with Girls Who Code, because I'm a Black woman, they often ask me my opinion about diversity and equity and inclusion, which I'm happy to talk about. But I would like to be approached for um, also just to talk about trends in the industry and things that you would talk to, you know, a male marketer about or a white woman. Um, so I'm, I'm very um, glad that we've had this conversation about uh, industry trends because that is something that I'm very interested in. Awesome. I'm glad to, to have you on the podcast to talk about those things. Uh, last couple of questions. What's, what are you proud of that maybe we haven't touched on on the podcast so far? I'm really proud of, on a personal note, I'm really proud that I persevered in this field. Um, you know, I think that it is, it can be difficult when you're working in an environment that doesn't, that where you can't always see yourself in a leadership role. Um, and it can be easy to, to say that, oh, I don't, this is just not for me. Like I've tried it and I think I need to move on to something else. Um, so I'm really proud that I persevered in, in my career and persevered particularly in the marketing and advertising realm. Um, I'm also really proud of making the transition from agency and corporate work to nonprofit and 
working, you know, within an organization that values marketing and that values communications as a tool for not only getting our message across, but also a tool for culture change, which, you know, marketing in a nonprofit is overhead, is overhead. It is not, you know, it's not something that um, is not programmatic. And, you know, the fact that we fundraise for our campaigns and that we are valued within the organization and not just used as a tool um, to market our programs is, um, has been incredibly valuable to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think your perseverance is really going to resonate with the listeners. And also, it's wonderful work you, you're doing. Um, you're doing great work. And um, I'm sure our listeners would love to connect with you as well on that. So what, what kind of, uh, where can our listeners connect with you online? What are the best platforms? So I am on Instagram um, and Twitter. Um, my Instagram handle is, um, hold on. This might be an edit edit moment because I'm always giving people the wrong Instagram handle. Sorry. No worries. (laughs) Um, All right. It's AK underscore Gramby. Okay, perfect. Is that for Instagram and Twitter as well? Um, Yes. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Ashley, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you on the podcast. We usually like to end the podcast with... Um, the guests describing one word or phrase that describes their brand. So what, how would you describe Ashley Gramby's brand? Um, I would describe my brand as, um, as strong yet soft. Um, I think that I am a good listener and I think that, you know, those insights I like to bring into my work. Um, and I think that it's only made me, um, a stronger marketer and a better, um, a better teammate and a better leader. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you being on, uh, you have such great stories and insights and I'm sure the listeners would love it. Well, thank you so much. I'm really glad that you um, reached out to me and had me on. I'm excited to, to hear more episodes from you. This episode of the CMO and Joe podcast has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more business strategies and tactics to help you create the profitable and successful business you've always dreamed of. And don't forget to rate and review so we can continue to bring you the best content. See you on the next episode.